Welcome to the latest event in the Space for Thought lecture theatre, le lecture series, which is to uh, celebrate the opening of this new academic building. I'm Richard Hyman, I'm Professor of Industrial Relations, now located in this new building. Um, I'm delighted to welcome tonight's speaker, who is Professor Wolfgang Streich, who is Director of the Max Planck Institute für Sozialforschung in Cologne and is also Professor of Sociology at the university there. Before he went to Max Planck, uh, Wolfgang spent a number of years as Professor of Sociology and Industrial Relations at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And for many years before that, he was a senior researcher at the Wissenschaftszentrum in Berlin. Um, Wolfgang and I have known each other for probably some three decades. Um, in the 1980s, we collaborated on a book entitled New Technology and Industrial Relations. And it's amusing uh, thinking back now that the new technology we had at our disposal were the elect electric typewriter the photocopier and the fax machine. <laughs> um, Wolfgang's work has always looked at um, key practical problems related to uh, work and employment. He's explored the interconnections between economics, sociology and politics and for much of his career, his argument was that these interconnections created sources of stability, and in particular looking at the uh, German system, the notion of beneficial constraints that um, rules, regulations, institutional uh, controls closed off certain options but opened up, up, up others which were socially beneficial whereas if employers in particular simply could do what their immediate uh, parochial and short term self interest suggested would uh, create um, adverse societal consequences um, and probably until the early 1990s, his work took a fairly optimistic view of German society. Since then, increasingly, he's uh, been exploring the corrosive consequences of neoliberal internationalization, and much of his more recent work has been of a more somber character, and at least uh, an interim summation of much of his recent work is in the book which either has just been published or is about to be published, uh, details of which are at the back, entitled Reforming Capitalism, Institutional Change in the German Political Economy. And I assume that many of the themes in the book will connect with what um, Wolfgang says tonight under his title, Flexible Employment, Stable Society, question mark. So thank you very much for coming on board again and can I invite you to give your lecture? Thank you.
Thank you, Richard, for the nice introduction. Uh, I have slightly changed the title of my presentation. Uh, and as I go along, you'll see why. Um, this being the uh, Space for Thought lecture series, I, I thought I'd present something to you that I'm still thinking about, which is in part the second half of my presentation, a new topic for me, which I, however, think uh, is very much worth exploring. And to some of you, uh, there may not be many new ideas there. To me, they were all new <laughs> when I thought them up. The, the subject of this lecture, then, will be the relationship between labor markets, social structures, and the state. More specifically, I will look at what has become and is continuing to become of the post-war configu uh, Fordist configuration of stable employment, the single earner family, and social policy. The key concept is flexibility. And the perspective is a Polanian one, the increasing commodification of labor since the end of the Fordist settlement, its functions and dysfunctions, and the social counter-movement it is or is not calling forth. In the latter respect, I'm particularly interested in the role of government and how it changes under the impact of expanding, less regulated, and more volatile markets. Uh, some of these, um, including some of the, of, the, of the contradictions in this role, and some of these we also seem to observe in the response of public policy to the crisis in the market for another fictitious commodity, money. While this lecture will focus on labor markets, I will at the end point out a few interesting parallels with markets for capital. I begin with what I call the rise of flexibility. Today, the paramount concern in industrial relations and labor market policy is flexibility. This was not always so. In the immediate post-war period, employment systems were deliberately designed to protect workers and their families from the fluctuations of markets and provide for stable incomes and careers. Institutionalized rights of social and industrial citizenship together with corresponding obligations of employers and governments were to insulate social life from the pressures for rapid change as generated by fluctuating relative prices, thereby limiting the extent to which labor was turned into a marketable commodity. Stability-providing institutions were the main political achievement of a newly empowered working class after the defeat of fascism in the confrontation with really existing communism and under the historical compromise of democratic capitalism. They had many different facets. Employment protection law was to make employers to hold on to workers not just in good but also in bad times. Collective agreements made incomes and careers more predictable, and various kinds of social insurance protected workers against individual or collective disaster. Industrial policy, planification in French, of all sorts, as Schoenfield shows in his uh, magisterial survey of European countries, was to provide for jobs where workers lived sparing them from having to move to where the jobs were. 
and political demand management was to prevent economies getting stuck in an unemployment equilibrium. The rise of flexibility as a concern for industrial relations and as a subject for labor economics began with the end of the post-war settlement in the 1970s. As the Wirtschaftswunder, the Trente Glorieuse, the golden age of the post-war boom faded out, the advance of mass production got stuck, and the global monetary regime, with the U.S. as benevolent hegemon, broke apart, flexibility began its ascent as a key concept in the literature on labor markets. This graph shows uh, uh, a, uh, a database uh, and, and, and it searches for the concept of flexibility. And as you see, after the first appearance in the 1970s, it took off in the subsequent decade and in the second half of the 1990s became finally dominant by all accounts. Well, Hegel's famous observation, the owl of Minerva, spreads his wing, its wings only with the falling of the dust. We may assume a time span of roughly half a decade between the discovery of a research topic and the appearance of first research results in scholarly journals. This suggests that the rise of flexibility as a topic coincides exactly with the historical period covered by Andrew Glynn's account of post-war capitalism becoming once again, as he calls it, unleashed. It is interesting to note that for a while different versions of flexibility coexisted and indeed competed with one another. When employers and governments began to ask workers to allow them more flexibility and become more flexible themselves, workers, in countries with strong unions and a broad skill base, uh, such as Germany, a typical response was to offer functional or internal flexibility in lieu of numerical or external flexibility. Workers, in other words, were willing to switch jobs inside the existing workplace and change between different functions on condition that they were guaranteed continued employment in one form or other and frequently conditional on employers providing them with additional training. Other proposals to avoid external flexibility included more variable working time arrangements, such as yearly working time accounts and even variable pay. Ultimately, however, all of this seems to have been to no avail. Functional flexibility at best delayed, but could not prevent the arrival of numerical flexibility, either because its potential was too soon exhausted or because employers resented the additional efforts, organizational and otherwise it required them to undertake, or because of declining trade union power. How flexibility in the end came down to a massive reopening of external labor markets is reflected in the literature, where a significant decline by the late 1990s in the number of articles dealing with functional flexibility was paralleled by continuing increasing interest in numerical flexibility. Now, functional flexibility as an alternative to numerical flexibility was associated with model Japan or model Germany. Neither of these, however, survived the 1990s. With the successful push for easier access of firms to external labor markets, new national models emerged 
in particular the Netherlands and Denmark. It is in one of these two countries that the latest buzzword in uh, labor market policy and industrial relations was invented, flexicurity. Its first appearance in the newspapers, here we go, uh, dates uh, in the late 1990s in both the English and the German press. And from 2004 on, it becomes firmly established as a topic of, uh, of interest. A little later, with the usual time lag, here we are, flex security becomes also current in scholarly journals. This is the scholarly journal uh, graphic. As has often been noted, it is not easy to say what flex security really means, which makes it ideally suited for all sorts of rhetorical uh, exercise. In light of its origins, we may broadly define it as a form of social security or of protection of social stability that is to be compatible with high turnover and mobility in external labor markets. It may also be described as a set of public policies designed to replace employment security with job security, guaranteeing workers not a given job in a given place of employment, but some job in some place of employment. If necessary, a rapid succession of jobs. In its more euphemistic self-advertisements, flexicurity is to replace what is called old, outdated form of social security with new, more modern ones, better adjusted to the assumed needs of a more competitive and faster changing economy with institutions designed to support and embrace rather than prevent commodification of labor while it is promised still protecting workers from the uncertainties associated with it. Now, be this as it may, what can be observed is that the rise of flex security was accompanied by a vigorous effort in European <coughs> countries to deregulate employment. How successful that effort was, especially in the 1990s, is reflected by the index of the overall strictness of employment protection law kept by the OECD. And I'm grateful to the OECD office to provide me with the uh, 2006 figures that are not yet uh, published. Uh, now, for eight selected countries, there are of uh, that are of particular interest here, the average value of the index fell dramatically from 2.4 in 1990 to 1.8 in 1998, the decade of liberalization, and further to 1.7. Unfortunately, the second element of flex security, that for which the security part of the word stands, is much less discernible. What seems to be the case is that where flexicurity is to be more than just flexibility, and now this is an important, uh, uh, will, will become an important point in the argument later, it imposes high costs on social security systems as these have to maintain workers during the frequent if temporary spells of unemployment they are expected to accept for the benefit of economic progress. In other words, while the benefits of flexibility are reaped 
first and foremost by employers, its costs have to be absorbed by the community as a whole. Exemplary for this is Denmark, where flexicurity seems most advanced. While there is hardly any employment protection in Denmark, at least by continental European standards, uh, which then allows employers to hire and fire workers uh, basically at will, uh, unemployment benefit is exceptionally high, offering workers high income security in compensation for low, if any, uh, job security. High rates of income replacement, of course, carry with them uh, what economists call a moral hazard, which makes it necessary for the government to have the capacity to make workers take almost any job offered to them regardless of pay and location. This requires a powerful labor market bureaucracy, one that has not only complete information on job openings, but also commands effective means to sanction workers in unemployment who are unwilling to return to the labor market as soon as possible. You need a very strong bureaucracy for this thing. As I said, none of this can be cheap. In 2003, the Danish state, and these are the latest figures I could, uh, I could assemble, had to spend a record 4.6% of the country's gross domestic product on labor market policy about three percentage points went into unemployment benefit, while the rest was to cover the costs of so-called active policies, mostly training and job referral. The other home country of tech security, the Netherlands, ranked second among OECD countries at 3.6%. By comparison, the two classical countries of flexibility without security, the United Kingdom and the United States, spend no more than 0.8 and 0.7% of their GDP respectively on labor market policy. Roughly as much as Japan, 0.7%. The traditional country of functional flexibility where the costs of employment stability are or used to be absorbed by employers. The, the Danish case draws attention to a peculiar relationship to which I will return at the end of my presentation. The move from post-war employment stability to flexicurity or flexibility is tantamount to a process of market expansion. The difference between the two su successive regimes is fundamental. Although in most countries, movement from one to the other took place more or less gradually over several decades and is still underway. While under post-war Fordism, labor market institutions were to limit the commodification of labor, now they are to promote and support it, encouraging and perhaps enabling workers to accept uncertainty as a fact of life, rather than shielding them against it. In continental European settings, the transition to flexible labor market took place in the course of a long-drawn process of economic liberalization freeing employers from social obligations so as to enhance their capacity to compete or simply to make profit. What is interesting is that, as illustrated by Danish labor market policy, public policy that encourages the dismantling of protective institutions 
in pursuit of efficiency and competitiveness, including facilitation of access for employers to external labor markets, may find itself constrained to provide for some sort of functional equivalent. As the state is pulled in to close the gaps torn in the social fabric by advancing commodification of labor, social obligations for ma market participants, formal or informal, to limit their rational pursuit of economic advantage, may have to be replaced with state obligations discharged through cash transfers. In this way, expansion of free or freer markets may give rise to expansion of state intervention where private resources previously set aside for stabilizing social relations must be replaced with public ones. Note that Denmark is a, so, so markets sort of that's the, the, the mental image practice create gaps in social uh, fabrics which must then be filled in by public policy. Uh, if, of course, public policy is able to do this. No, note that Denmark is a country with a social democratic tradition of high taxation and with an economy, which is not irrelevant here at all, of mostly small and middle-sized firms that are unlikely to be able to relocate to countries where taxes are low, captive tax base. So whether or not uh, increases in labor market flexibility can be followed by effective institutional provisions for flex security and under what conditions is an important question that I cannot address here. In the German case, gains in labor market flexibility were achieved primarily through a policy of activation involving stronger work incentives for individuals previously, or work incentives in, in quotation marks, that's an e economist's uh, uh, jargon, uh, involving stronger uh, work incentives for individuals previously insulated from uh, market pressures, in particular in the form of shortened unemployment benefits and fewer opportunities for early retirement. Also, some deregulation of atypical part-time marginal and temporary employment and a more efficient or slightly more efficient job service. Overall, atypical employment increased in the decade between 1997 and 2007 from 17.5 to 25% uh, or 26 rounded from 18 to 26% of the workforce. This was associated with a parallel increase in participation rates. Here we are. Especially among women, which was in turn accompanied by a significant decline in average working hours, pointing to part-time work, again for women more than for men. In other words, expansion of employment and the corresponding decline in unemployment were, was accomplished in Germany mainly by a removal of social protections, which had in the past enabled workers 
to reject offers of what was widely considered substandard forms of employment, including, for example, single mothers who, uh, who were often uh, excluded or excused from, from having to take a job. While this allowed employers more flexibility in their use of labor, it imposed on employees a significant increase in uncertainty about working time, pay, future employment, career perspectives, and the like. As most, if not all, of the increase in employment took place at the lower end of the labor market, rising employment generated, higher, generated by higher labor market flexibility coincided with a sharp rise in inequality and poverty. These are OECD data. Uh, until the late 1980s, West Germany was widely known for having a low wage spread and a low Gini coefficient, especially for a large country. In the early 2000s, however, it rapidly closed the gap to the OECD average. On the left side, you see the, the Gini coefficient. And on the right side, uh, you see the uh, development of income uh, poverty the, uh, the blue uh, dots are the OECD average, and there you see that even here, uh, the German uh, development actually uh, uh, begins to equal the, uh, the average of the OECD countries. The, the data suggest that the institutional context in which labor market flexibility is introduced may make a potentially decisive difference Whereas in Denmark, high turnover in a flexible external labor market seems to coexist easily with high equality. In Germany, where equality has traditionally been achieved by publicly subsidized low activity, uh, liberalization caused a widening gap between the low and the high end of the labor market. And it's astonishing that this happens in a country that uh, for a long time was uh, uh, essentially proud of the fact that uh, they were able to, uh, to uh, keep inequality uh, limited as compared to, to the usual suspects like uh, liberal market economies. Uh, so now I come to the more unconventional part of, of, this, uh, of this presentation. As pointed out, the, the, the change from Fordism to flexibility was and continues to be fundamental, involving a deep redefinition in the meaning of social and economic citizenship, from, from public protection from the market to public activation for the market, combined perhaps with assistance within it. Clearly, this must be why the liberalization of labor markets and the departure from the standard employment relationship proceeded at such different speed in different political settings. Still, overall, it went surprisingly smoothly, raising the question why there was so little resistance in real life as well as in scholarly reflection against the rise of flexibility to a hegemonic idea in industrial relations and labor market policy. After all, the standard employment relationship had been the principal protection of workers and their communities against the volatility of free markets. And it had been only in exchange for such protection that uh, free markets came to be accepted by the organized working class after the, in, 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 in the post-war era. 
stable employment in particular was considered in many countries as an essential condition for the integrity of the social lives of workers and their families. And if you read the book, for example, by Tony Judd on the post-war, on post-war Europe, where he describes as the men returned from the battlefields and the women from the armaments factories or the military hospitals, the, the, the system of the family wage for the male single earner became the cornerstone of a newly settled way of life whose emblem soon became the baby boom of the late 1940s and the 1950s. So in retrospect, the social structure that corresponded to the socially highly regulated employment relationship of the golden age became known as the Fordist family. Obviously, it was, in current jargon, highly gendered. And this is why the concept, from the beginning, had a more than slightly derogatory, or from its invention, connotation. Keynes had once defined full employment as no more than 5% of the males between 18 and 65 being out of work. 5% males. Women were not mentioned because they uh, were assumed as a matter of course to be in the house and provide outside the market and to the extent that the two were identical outside the public sphere for their husbands and their joint children. It was this world of stable patriarchal families in well-integrated social communities, working class communities if you want, or working and middle class communities, that Polanyi expected to be defended by what he believed was an inevitable counter-movement against more than marginal commodification of the fictitious commodity labor. In, in particular, against any attempt to erode the institutionalized protections against the, what, what he calls the grinding mill of self-regulating markets. Um, Human beings, in the view of Polanyi and many of his contemporaries, needed the security that was offered by a stable society, including stable families, since, since such security was incompatible with permanently changing relative prices in self-regulating markets for labor as well as for its products. A good life presupposed strong institutions that limited the reach of markets and protected society and social structures from their destructive effects. Now, then, this raises the question again, why did no significant counter-movement uh, arise to defeat the trend away from the standard employment relationship? Trying to answer this question, one notes that the social and family structure that the increasingly defunct uh, post-war standard employment relationship had been designed to protect has itself dissolved in a process of truly revolutionary change. In fact, it appears that the Fordist family was replaced by a flexible family in the same way as Fordist employment was replaced by flexible employment during the same period and also all across the Western world. A few select indicators may suffice. In Germany, one of the more conservative countries or societies, the rate of divorce by and large doubled between 1970 and 2005, 
with the largest increase in the first half of the period, the, the roaring uh, 1970s. New marriages simultaneously declined by more than a third, making for a ratio of new marriages over divorces of 1.9 in 2005 as compared to 5.8 in 1970. So a factor of three, basically, declined. Uh, moreover, family ties, where they still existed in a more increasingly individualized society, have become much less binding. Statistics on cohabitation, which had not been considered worthwhile collecting before 1978, show an increase in the percentage of unmarried couples in roughly a quarter century by a factor of six to 12.8% in 2005. As the denominator in, uh, includes all couples, young and old, the increase among the younger generation can be imagined to be much higher than uh, what is shown in the table. Non-marital birth increased in parallel by a factor of four to about a third of all newborn children and of families with children, more than a fourth were headed in 2005 by a single parent or an unmarried couple, doubling the respective figures from the end of the 1970s, and one may suspect much more than doubling those from the beginning of the decade, but we don't have uh, statistics on this. Germany, to be sure, was by no means an extreme case. With the end of the Fordist era, divorce rates seem to have increased everywhere until they stabilized around 1985 or 1990. This is six countries that I've uh, uh, selected for the purposes of my demonstration. I need much more, more data on this, but there's a, uh, there are interesting things in there which I will, during the lecture, try to pull out. The exception was the United States, where divorce was always extremely frequent and where it started slowly to decline around 1980 in the Reagan family values era. Uh, still, uh, the divorce rates in the United States, incidentally, the classical country of employment at will, there's no employment protection, there's no protection in marriage, co continue to be by far the highest in the world. Ratios of this is an interesting statistic. Ratios of new marriages over divorces fell dramatically, apparently everywhere, until they conspicuously converged, at least in our sample of six countries, at roughly 2.1 in the middle of the present decade. As you see, now it's, always, it's two new marriages to one divorce. And, and it was very different at the beginning. Italy is not there because Italy had no divorce in 1970. There was no legal. <laughs> therefore, therefore, you can't. Yeah, yeah, but this also absolutely exciting. It is only 30 years, and uh, these things have changed in enormous ways. Finally, birth to unmarried parents, what in more conservative times used to be called birth out of wedlock, it increased explosively in all countries from an average in 1970 of 8.6 of newborn children for the six countries to one of no less than 38% in 2005. 
And there are countries like Sweden where the majority of, of newborn children are born to mothers who are not married. And the extreme case is Iceland in Europe, where I think 90% of, uh, of, of children are born in this way. I, Iceland seems to be the, the uh, case. They also had a huge financial crisis. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Uh, ma market pressures and market attractions. I will now try to, uh, to say something on what one can imagine lies behind the convergence of these two developments, the parallelism between these, between these terms, flexibility here, flexibility there. What accounts for this parallel rise or to use a more elevated concept, the co-evolution of flexible employment and flexible families. In a Polanian perspective, the culprit would be advancing markets, breaking through society's defenses and imposing on human beings against their will an anomic individualized existence in a world of weakening social ties governed by ever-changing market conditions. That the matter must be more complex, however, is already indicated by the fact that the decay of the post-war family was already well underway when the attack by employers and economists on the standard employment relationship had yet to start in earnest. Note that the concept of liberalization denotes not just an economic but also a social and indeed a cultural process. Shedding social obligations may have its attractions, not just for employers in labor markets, but also for individuals in families and communities. Cultural change does not necessarily require exogenous or economic pressure, as there often is enough internal discontent, for it, discontent in civilization, inside a social order to drive change from within. Moreover, Ways of life are subject to astonishing plasticity, even if at any given point in time they may appear natural and made for eternity. What is deemed good or appropriate may change profoundly, not just between generations, but even within a lifetime. Clearly, transition to a more flexible labor market in and after the 1970s does not seem to have been much obstructed by resistance of cultural ideals from the 1950s about what does and does not constitute a livable society. Instead, such ideas seem to have given way with surprising ease to cultural tendencies highly compatible with an expansion of markets, tendencies supporting a worldview for which market uncertainty was as much a welcome challenge as a frightening threat. Think of uh, the, the new literature. Could, could have shown you another another diagram uh, of the rise of the concept of the marriage market in family sociology. It runs completely parallel to that, and the idea of market attractions and and the and the exciting uncertainty of markets must play a role here too. Two stories in part alternative and in part complementary are being told to account for the simultaneous rise of liberalized labor markets and social relations. One of them is about the pressures, the other about the attractions of markets. 
And in both, not surprisingly, the entry of women in paid employment plays the leading role. And I will very briefly sort of summarize these two narratives, uh, contradictory at first glance. The first, if you will, Polanyan account goes roughly as follows. Beginning in the 1970s, stagnant real wages and rising unemployment compelled households, first in the United States, to supply more labor to the market to defend their accustomed standard of living. Eroding social protection and declining efficacy of social rights caused by intensified competition in product markets and mounting political counteroffensives of employers exposed workers and their families to more market uncertainties. As a result, they found themselves forced to supplement single earner incomes by married women taking up employment, part-time where it was available to cope with the economic difficulties caused by accelerated industrial restructuring. Think of the United States 1970s declining standard of living. Among the young uh, generation, formation of stable family relations was postponed or abandoned altogether. Italy is the picture here. As market uncertainty impeded entry into a settled life. One result was and continues to be a growing number of single mothers living near the poverty line. Indeed, having children, especially more than one, became the most important cause of poverty of individuals as well as of families. Three children, you're basically economically dead. Uh, mo moreover, by, by the end of the century, rising costs of social protection forced reforms of the welfare state and the labor market regime to push as many of the unemployed as possible, among them many single mothers, into employment. Improving market access for outsiders required that institutional protections of insiders were disabled, at least in part, further intensifying the spreading sense of uncertainty. As all sorts of atypical, flexible employment proliferated, so did the pressures on the standard employment relationship. This story is well known. Compare to this the liberationist story, which regards the exit of women from traditional families that began in the 1970s as a long overdue escape from a repressive, pre-modern way of life. Here, increased economic and social uncertainty figures as a price worth paying for progress toward personal freedom. Such progress inevitably had to be achieved against the Fordist labor market regime, which was a male construction founded on female domesticity and subservience. In countries like Germany, where post-war labor market institutions were more resilient than elsewhere, it took time for the growing number of women attracted by the freedom of the market, I paraphrase the second narrative, yeah, to wear down the institutional barriers against employment expansion inherent in the family wage system and the single male breadwinner social security regime. Even here, however, rigid institutions protecting the historical prerogatives of males to sell their labor power for money, the prerogative males to sell their labor power, and with it the established family system and its gender division of labor finally had to give. Obviously, flexible labor markets open to all could not offer the same sort of security and stability as the labor markets of Fordism with their restricted labor supply. 
we basically have a doubling of the labor supply. What do you expect? Uh, nor could they continue to pay one worker enough to feed an entire family, and it wasn't necessary anymore. You have individuals, not families. What, what do you need a family wage for? Still, while in the economic pressure account, markets are imposed rather than sought, and market uncertainties undermine or altogether prevent the formation of lasting social commitment in the liberationist story, universal participation in markets above all open to the road to a desirable, less confined way of social life. Now, these two uh, stories you hear all the time. And sometimes the same person will, will tell you the same story. Uh, depends on the audience who they talk to. Uh, but I will now, I will only briefly touch on the question of whether these two accounts are compatible. Women pushed into employment by economic uh, necessity and welfare reform or pulled by the prospect of personal independence. How is this reconcilable? For example, while the liberationist narrative probably applies mostly at the top end of the social spectrum, the market pressure account is likely to reflect conditions at the bottom. What, what may be a welcome adventure for one may be an unpleasant economic necessity for the other. One may also talk the liber take the liberationist account to be an ideological representation of the structural constraints uh, described by the market pressure account. While ideologies do reflect reality, they do so selectively in ways that make it appear ideal or inevitable. So, um, in any case, although it is unlikely that a recommodification of labor after the end of the Golden Age was driven by a mass desire for economic adventure, the willingness to defend the post-war social order against the pressures and attractions of the market seems not to have been nearly as strong as someone as one might have expected or someone like Polanyi might have expected. And what one sees here is that market, labor market analysis cannot be done outside the cultural or the sociology of the evolution of culture. The two hang very closely together. And there's very little that, that tells me how we bring the two together. To many, escaping from the Fordist family was clearly more important than defending the standard employment relationship. And in important ways, their interests coincided with the interests of those who wanted to abolish the latter for very different economic purposes. One reason why the labor market regime of the post-war settlement was vulnerable, not just economically, but uh, and from without, but also culturally and from within, seems to have been the vulnerability of the way of life it was supposed to protect to what Boltanski and Capello have called the artistic critique of industrial society. The claim that life in that society offered little, if any, opportunity for individual autonomy and personal authenticity. Artistic discontent with the culture of the 1950s and 1960s prepared the way for the cultural megatrend of the second half of the 20th century individualization. Exit, or the option of exit, became more highly valued than loyalty, which not only made for more flexible families, but also made more acceptable and emerging employment relationship 
or employment regime that both required and offered more flexibility. As markets became more legitimate, as a side effect of growing individualism, cultural change allowed for a new quantum leap in the commodification of labor and the intensification of capital accumulation. With many more people that could have been expected turning out, than could have been expected turning out to be prepared to enjoy, or at least to know of no alternative to a much more market-driven way of life as a condition of individual autonomy. Now, I skip a section here because we are closing, we are reaching the end of my time, where I suggest that it becomes, in, it, it becomes very important to understand the relationship between the more flexible employment regimes that now emerge and private life uh, and, the, and social networks and the way in which people organize their family lives. There are in, and there are much more interesting topics here than those suggested by, let's say, Granovetter and his, his uh, concept of the strength of weak ties. I leave this beside because I have a few other things also and, and, and a few interesting empirical data to show and then I will uh, come to my conclusion. So the final section begins flexible families, stable societies, question mark. Now, the strongest and certainly most long-lasting social commitment is having children. And their children are not easily compatible with flexible androgynous labor markets has become commonplace in recent years. Taking a high birth rate as a crude indicator of social cohesion and of the relative importance of collectivism versus individualism, trends in birth rates confirm that the transition to more flexible labor markets coincided, and also flexible families, with the evolution of a less tightly integrated way of life, taking uh, children as a sort of crude indicator of social integration. All over the Western world, the decline of the Fordist family and employment regime was accompanied by a decline in the number of children a process that started well before reliable contraception and safe abortion became available and, very importantly, continued thereafter. Look at the 1990s. The pill had been around since 1968. More, more specifically, it appears that the steep fall in birth rates, here it is, uh, in the 1970s was followed by a slow recovery in a number of countries during the 1980s to be followed in turn by another decline coincident with the accelerated economic deregulation of the 1990s and the 2000s. And in Italy, it's commonplace that uh, if young people don't find jobs, they can't have families and then they can't have children. But in other countries too. There, there's a twist to this, which I will explain in a, in a minute. Why did the baby boomers, when they came of age in the 1970s, and why do their children today behave so differently from the post-war uh, generation? And here I'm on, uh, to me, unknown uh, territory. Explanations abound, some compatible, some not, but nobody would contest that both the pressures and the attractions of markets play an important part. A family that sells or must sell 3,000 person hours a year to the labor market has less time to devote to children than one that sells only, say, 1,800 hours. Weekend partnerships and long-distance commuting do not help 
nor does the increased possibility of divorce or generally declining institutional support for lasting partnership inside or outside formal marriage. Unstable employment, the possibility of poverty associated with the prospect of divorce and single parenthood, delayed formation of families either because of a lack of income or to the contrary the attraction of a professional career and of an advanced level of consumption, combined with a decline in individual autonomy that comes inevitably with parenthood and partnership, which must appear all the more threatening after the cultural transition from the, let's say, petty bourgeois lifestyle of the post-war generation to what one might call the petty bohemian way of life of the generation of the 1970s and later. In the immediate post-war years, when children were born in large numbers, having children was in most countries considered a private affair of no interest to public policy. An exception was the ultimate country of social engineering at the time, social democratic Sweden, where early state feminism, Alva Murda, went hand in hand with pro-natalism and deep eugenic intervention in reproductive behavior. Sweden was, from today's point, absolutely unbelievable. And, and there was a strong nationalist uh, impetus behind this. Very few Swedes, they must survive. We need children. In, in Germany, Konrad Adenauer became famous for his dictum, Kinder kriegen die Leute sowieso. Children, uh, people have anyway. Later in the 1970s, Helmut Schmidt held the firm view that, to quote, what people do in their bedrooms had to be of no interest to the government. Clearly this reflected the memory of Nazi population policies which made pro-natalist government intervention taboo during the history of the Federal Republic. Now, however, of West Germany, even in Germany, the number of children has become a highly salient political issue. The universally accepted principle being that having too few children is dangerous to the health of a society and that as a consequence the rate of birth is a legitimate and indeed urgent public concern. I ask you to give me 10 more minutes and then I will have spoken. It, it will be a French lecture, not a German. It will be 16 minutes rather than 45. But I, I have a few data to show that I do not want to, uh, to, to skip. In, in many countries today, flexible labor markets and flexible families are recognized by public policy as obstacles to the production of a sufficient number of children. To correct what may appear as simultaneous market and family failure, new social policies are being devised that involve extensive cash transfers to parents, provision of a public infrastructure for childcare, or both. It is interesting to note that underneath the surface of the public discourse, one sometimes finds, and I could give you examples, but I won't do this now, one sometimes finds suppressed as yet quite bewildering racist, classist, and indeed biologist topics, including a deep concern with the fact that a growing share of the children born in European countries are born to immigrant families or to women from the lower classes who have little education and supposedly a low IQ such women are widely believed to have children 
only because they have no attractive alternative opportunities in the labor market or because they prefer to live on transfer payments. Their children are considered to be the problem youth and later still the unemployed workers of the future. To avoid a demographic, demographic, what I call a demographic degeneration of domestic human capital and the economic problems that are feared to come with it, governments in a number of European countries are introducing extensive cash transfers to double career middle class families in stable employment to replace a significant share of one of the parents' income during a significant span of time after the birth of a child, obviously to motivate production of high-quality children by couples with academic training, high intelligence, and good working habits. Although policies like these are highly degressive in distributional terms, in that high-income couples receive significantly higher benefits than low-income earners or people out of work, public concern with demography has become strong enough to enlist even social democratic support for them, Germany. Uh, generally, the conviction has spread all across the political spectrum of many European countries that in contemporary society, spontaneous reproduction is not enough to provide for social stability and that having and raising children can no longer be left to families or what is left of them and must become a public responsibility if it is ever to happen at all. Now, complications, of course, abound in the picture, one of them being that the United States and the United Kingdom have relatively high birth rates in spite of very long working hours and very high uh, female participation and the absence, compared to countries like Sweden, of publicly provided childcare. Poverty and immigration may play a part here, and to this extent, the same demographic eugenic concerns may be expected at some point to arise as are arising today in continental Europe. Moreover, certainly in the US, the easy availability of low-wage household labor, the Philippine nanny for the two-earner upper-middle-class family, serves as a free market substitute for a public childcare infrastructure in a society with very high income inequality but other factors also intervene. One of them apparently being the percentage of children born to unmarried mothers. At least for the countries that I have sampled, birth rates today seem to co-vary strongly and positively with the rate of single motherhood at birth. Uh, Iceland again, uh, many, many children, 90% uh, as, as one used to say, out of, out of wedlock. Uh, no such relationship existed in 1970. Uh, remarkably, the relationship holds in the free market. This is the relationship here. Right? Um, the relationship holds in the free market uh, Anglo-American countries as well as in the state feminist countries of France and Sweden. Another facet of the same apparent correlation is that the decline in birth rates between 1970 and 2005 seems to be inversely related by and large to the increase in illegitimacy during the same period. 
In other words, that the number of children declined less in countries where giving birth outside formal marriage was or became more common. To the extent that this, at first glance, improbable correlation holds up to further scrutiny, a crucial contributing factor to relatively high fertility in the more individualistic societies of today might be social and economic conditions that make it easy for women to have children without having or having to have a husband as well. Maybe it's more pleasant. I, I conclude. Just as flexible labor markets, flexible, flexible families make high demands on informal social networks, either as conduits of solidarity or as substructures of formal exchange relations. Where informal networks are not sufficient, the state may be called in to set up a typically expensive public infrastructure to make markets work and facilitate participation in them. As liberalization does away with flexibility limiting formal or informal obligations, public intervention may be required to repair the gaps torn by the pressures and attractions of markets into the fabric of traditional social institutions. Such repair work tends to show up in public budgets as it importantly involves the centralization and monetarization of what used to be, uh, of what used to, to be the distributed and invisible opportunity costs of social restraint in the pursuit of economic interests. The new family policies in continental European countries share with Danish labor market policy the fact that they are designed to compensate the negative side effects of increased flexibility of employment or family relations and, the, and their effects on social stability as expanding markets replace traditional social obligations with a license for rational individualism, states come under pressure to nationalize the compensatory functions of increasingly defunct formal or informal regulatory institutions. In this respect, the same mechanisms seem to be at work here as in today's political reactions to the financial crisis when markets take out informal or cultural restraints and thereby undermine the reproduction of the social system. Here the state must provide for it with public money, cost it what it may, and especially, of course, in financial. Last paragraph. Providing monetary compensation for the destructive effects of free markets on social life is expensive. And one may ask how long the states of democratic capitalism will be able to foot the bill for the reconstructive surgery that is expected of them, especially when the public debt will finally have reached an astronomic dimension once the current financial crisis will be over. In recent years, family policy was the one big growth item in public budget, along with education. Much of it spent with little success on adapting schools to a new sort of family unable or unwilling to offer much assistance to children and teachers. Today, governments are supposed to rescue not just banks from insolvency, but also children from the poverty often associated with single parenthood or divorce. To create 
incentives of all kinds with uncertain success for middle class families to produce offspring to re-educate fathers to accept responsibility for their children to provide meals to children at school who do not receive meals at home because their parents are either too busy or too poor or both not to mention pressuring as well as enabling mothers and fathers to participate in the labor market if need be by supplementing their wages out of public coffers in, with all sorts of, uh, of, of wage subsidies. Th this is expensive. It would be a fascinating research topic to what extent the raising of children has already become a public responsibility and how much money the governments of advanced capitalist countries are today spending to make their societies reproduce at an acceptable rate and with what success. There's not much success uh, to be seen up to now in, in, in all these expensive efforts. Clearly, there's no reason at all to expect the state to wither away as markets and social structures in the Tao become more flexible. But there's very good reason to ask whether and under what conditions governments in capitalist democracies can afford the growing public costs of the private pursuit of advantage in ever freer markets. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Wolfgang, for that uh, very stimulating uh, speech. Um, we have 15 minutes or so for questions, uh, which I think Wolfgang suggested he'll take them one at a time. There is, I think, a roving mic. Um, so if you could wait for the mic before. Where is it, Wolfgang? Um, I've seen first one you got your hand up rather early, Howard. Um, could everyone say who they are and where they're from? And could you ask a question rather than making a speech? Uh, okay. Is this working? Right. Uh, Howard Gospel, King's College, London. Uh, I wonder if you'd like to comment, uh, Wolfgang, uh, on another possible uh, explanation, at least for the family story that you tell and that is a technological explanation, namely that uh, from the uh, mid to late 60s onwards and certainly through the 70s, there is a major change, technological change in world history, namely the development for the first time of reliable and safe uh, contraception in the birth control pill, which has certain effects in terms of uh, delayed family formation, uh, fewer children, perhaps women working longer, and along with women working longer, if in addition you add in. Okay. So, what about uh, what about birth control as an exogenous factor? Uh, birth control comes uh, becomes universally available around 1970, and after this, there's no uh, further. Uh, no increase in availability because everybody has it. But the birth rates continue to decline, especially the decline in the 1990s, which is pretty universal, 
cannot be explained uh, by sudden availability of birth control technology. It has been available before. Okay. Um, thanks very much for your very stimulating uh, talk. But I, I wonder about your account of these, these policies. Obviously, here in Britain, we don't really know what these continental family policies are. Um, and I'm, I wonder whether you can really justify your functional interpretation of them. For a start, we know they don't work. So that's a problem with a functional account of a policy if the first thing you can conclude about it is that it's not going to have the desired effect. But I also think maybe you need to look for, for whether what you're seeing is, is a sort of discursive strategy that covers up for other coalitions. Okay. You know, after all, you, you cited the Swedish example, and, and one of the things that, that Gustav Müller said in 1930 was he didn't care about frightening the conservatives with the death of the dying out of the Swedish people so long as they would vote for his social policies. And so maybe some of this is just rhetoric rather than, than a real functional uh, explanation. Okay. I, I suggest uh, there are two or three books by Alva Myrdal when she was minister in the Swedish government in, in the 1930s and 1940s. And this is so heavy on, 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 on this subject that I can't think that this is political tactic. It comes deep from the heart. And, and, and it also fits very well into a longer-term continuity of Swedish policy, Sweden being a small country, always afraid of being either overwhelmed by the Germans or by the Russians, and, and trying to, to, to find their way through uh, this, this complicated world for them. No, I think, I think this is genuine. Uh, as far as, as the um, functional explanations of family policies are concerned, uh, Jöster Esping Andersen is sort of very strong on this, and, and he, he has seen the, the future in, in Scandinavia, uh, and, and, and he will explain to everyone that this is the solution, because he lived in Italy at the time and they, uh, with his young wife, and, and they had a child, and they couldn't find childcare for the child, and then, then they fantasized about living in Sweden. That's, that's probably, probably what, what's behind this. Uh, he, he also became an advocate of of unlimited immigration uh, for very good reasons, because the, the more immigration you have, the cheaper the, the nannies become. Uh, and and uh, absolutely, no, no doubt. Uh, what, what I want to say is, however, that as far as the development that, that I know most about, the German case, uh, where we have a complete switch of the Christian Democratic Party towards very deep intervention uh, in the family structure, in favor of, uh, of uh, uh, reproduction, uh, totally sort of forgetting about Catholic ideas about marriage, about, about what a couple should be like. Uh, they just want children, nothing else. And, and there, you can't explain it by function, only by intention, because it's not yet on long enough. But what the minister, the minister explained a few weeks ago, they found that they had an increase in the number of children born in February over the over previous years February, which was about an increase of 0.2 percent, and she proclaimed a victory of her of her family strategy. Yeah. And this, they are so desperate. They are so desperate. Yeah. And and the Social Democrats are so desperate that they agreed to a law to pay to 
uh, to, to middle class families with two jobs, if one of them, uh, after having a child, uh, takes a leave from the job of 12 months, uh, a uh, pretty heavy subsidy that increases with the salary. Uh, it is it is sort of uh, th there's a ceiling on, on it, but it, but but the, but the married middle class family gets now a lot more during these 12 months than a single mother from <laughs> which is a wealth a single welfare mother and 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 the idea is sort of full heartedly supported by the social democrats that these people making a good money are used to making good money and and you can't expect them to just have one one salary. Uh, if you expect that from them, you can't expect children from them. That's the logic. Uh, Rebecca Gumbro McCormick, also from Birkbeck. Uh, I think you said you were from Birkbeck. I couldn't quite hear it. Um, Close. We're taking over the universe. Um, <laughs> a sim simple question on, on Germany. Um, both uh, your earlier uh, earlier part of the talk on on the labor market issues and, and labor market protection, and later on looking at families. Um, presumably, your earlier statistics are specifically on the Federal Republic, and then later on you're looking at after the uni unification. But surely that must have a big impact on 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 your results. Uh, I would assume in the, I mean, I, I don't happen to know, but the, the German Dem Democratic Republic might have had very different family policies, very different patterns of divorce, and and. Uh, childbirth and so on, and so you're, you're not necessarily, you're not really comparing like with like. So, so no, I want no. to know how how you dealt with that problem. Oh yeah, yeah. This, this is a great question, and and I'm, uh, it, it is one of the points where I have to read much more. But two things I can report. Uh, one is they had a very high uh, birth rate before 1989. Uh, and the very high illegitimacy rate, which was as high as in Scandinavia. So th this correlation completely fits for, for East Germany. And then they had a complete breakdown of the birth rate after 1989, uh, although when, when sort of all sorts of state subsidies fell away, the, the, the crucial subsidy at the time was that you could basically, uh, you had a job, you could basically sort of dissociate yourself from the job if you had three or four, three children in succession. Then you were not seen at your workplace for five years. You simply weren't, weren't seen. You, you continued to draw your salary, but, uh, and, and, and that resulted in a sort of economic independence that also made it possible to have children and many children without having a husband. In other words, you didn't have to find someone uh, who would share the burden with you. You could carry the burden yourself, autonomously. After 1989, the possibility of just sort of taking leave from, uh, from work at full continuation of pay disappeared. And as a result, the birth rate... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's as deep as it fell. <laughs> exactly, yes. That's what happened. And it's still down there. Hello, I'm Judy Wiseman. I mean, I must say that I found your talk rather conservative and um, 
rather reductionist in the way you represented the link between um, changes in the market and changes in the family. And at points I did wonder, and I don't mean to caricature your talk, but um, feminism is to blame for a lot of things, and I'm willing to take on what feminism is to blame for, but it seems to me that kind of one could read the talk as kind of feminism is actually to blame for um, you know, a flexible labor market. It's kind of given a very kind of central account for why there wasn't resistance to a new regime. And I just wondered as a sociologist why you didn't give more emphasis to politics, the state, trade unions. I mean, a lot of intervening things that seem to me drawing a very close relationship in both your accounts, the Polyani negative one and the positive one, in terms of labor market changes and the fall of the family. And one could give a very different account, a much more kind of nuanced account of the relationship between those things. Um, and I also wondered just a kind of additional thing that I, I actually wasn't very convinced by your characterization of the kind of modern family as the flexible family. And I wondered if why you didn't draw more on Beck and Giddens and lots of other accounts which are much more positive about the egalitarian family, the intimate family, the kind of modern family that we're now entering. I mean, there was kind of overtones, I thought, of conservatism in your whole kind of representation. So I just thought I'd put that on the table and let you respond. <laughs> no, there are, there are no saints here in the story, and, and, but there are also no devils. And uh, I, I, I could, this sort of Giddens and Beck stuff, I, of course, but then they forget that these families have no children. And, and uh, uh, that's what I'm saying. And, and of course, uh, the, the upper classes could always afford either to have no children or to have many, many children because they had servants. But, but now the middle class is in a situation where they don't know what to do. And, and the, the only nuance that I would want to add to this is that from personal uh, experience, quite a few people want more children than they have, but they don't know how to do it. Uh, they, they, yeah, how to, yeah, <laughs> wow, wow, I, I, didn't, I didn't think that this sort of thing could, could cause, uh, could, could, could cause <laughs> people to laugh, but what I meant, let me explain what I meant, they don't know how to squeeze them into their everyday lives, yeah, and and I think it would be, I think it would be dishonest if we didn't say that. Can I just take one response? Yeah. That what demographers would say is the more you educate women wherever, from here to an African village, the less they're going to have children. That's what a demographer would say. Yeah. So a solution could be that you just stop educating. No. (laughs) (laughs) See, if you were, if you were talking about solution to the problem, See, as a sociologist, we both, I think, should accept the principle that we're allowed to talk about problems of which we know no solution yet. That must be allowed. If the principle would be that you can talk about problems only if you have to offer a solution, you would be a politician, not a sociologist. I'm not a politician. My name is Mutenshin from the Social Policy Department at the school. Um, I would like to challenge Wolfgang Strick with Wolfgang Strick. And I remember um, 
you're writing that correlation is not the same as causation, causality. Yeah, yeah. Um, much of the data you presented was just correlation, and then you try to link these different um, data sets um, with a functionalist argument. But I also remember uh, Wolfgang Strick writing that um, there are issues with functionalist fallacies and that we should be um, careful with easy explanations. So I was simply wondering um, why you provide a functionalist explanation um, for the phenomenon you see and why we should believe you um, with that given um, what you wrote earlier about how to ex um, establish a theory. Yeah, I, I'm not aware that there is a functionalist argument in there. At least <laughs> I always try to avoid them. But they are like uh, like poison. You, it's very very hard to get around them, <laughs> or like uh, no poison is very hard. it's easy to get around. But it is difficult. They are so seductive. Uh, I don't think, however, that I use the fun a functionalist argument would be that you explain something because of its contribution to something else. In other words, that exists because it has a certain effect. I don't think I did that. Nor did I, at least I tried to avoid very carefully uh, linking the two, the two sides of this parallel development in a causal theory. I, I, in fact, I presented two alternative causal stories. Uh, all I was saying, and there I'm now firmly convinced, and this is what I learned from interacting with this uh, problem, that a theory of the labor market and of social policy that does not take into account cultural change will fail. And that the, the enormous cultural change we see in the lives of people from the 19, uh, let's say, early 1970s to now must matter. And it does matter. It matters enormously to public policy already. And uh, what, what I really try to avoid, and, and if you I can show you, <laughs> show you the text. I, I, there's proof here to explain the change in family structures by economic change. I always, I can, I can tell a story that goes the other way around. It is much more uh, uh, sympathetic to, to your view. Uh, women were no longer willing to live in the poorest families, but the price they were paying for it was, first of all, that they had to go to a capitalist labor market with all the problems involved. Maybe that's not a big price, but uh, for someone, the, the, but I, I, I would say it's, it's quite a price. And then the other price they, 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 they had to pay was that uh, um, uh, they had to expose themselves to the same uncertainties, insecurities that people have to do if they, uh, if they leave uh, the village and go into the city. And this is exactly what happened. Maybe you want to pay the price. And, and I can understand why people want See, the, the, the Capello um, uh, uh, Boltanski argument about the two parallel critiques of the post war political economy, one having to do with the culture and the other having to do with the economic efficiency of this configuration. I think these two things, the parallelism is extremely interesting. And one should. Uh, uh, try to learn something. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid we've run out of time um, and I'm going to have to wind up now. Um, two things I was asked to announce. First of all, the uh, 
event has been recorded and it is hoped that it will be uploaded as a podcast if the technology works. <laughs> and the second is the next event in this series is in exactly two weeks time the 26th of March same place same time when uh, Professor John Roberts of Stanford will be giving a lecture entitled In Praise of Weak Incentives um, all that remains is first of all to thank you for your attendance and participation and in particular to thank Wolfgang for giving a stimulating and provocative talk. Thank you very much.